Welcome to another episode of the Painter, a podcast featuring conversations with rhetoricians about current rhetoric. Today, David Tucker and I have Professor Catherine Chapu here to join our interview about her article "Trumponomics, Neoliberal Branding, and the Rhetorical Circulation of Affect," which talks about Trump's rhetorical strategies in novel medium and the use of branding as an affect in his campaign propaganda. Before we dive into specific term and concept, let's first take a look at the general idea. This article involves a series of professional rhetorical terms and concepts, and some reader, like undergraduate students who are not rhetoric major, may find it difficult to understand the big picture of this article. So, my first question would be: Can you summarize the main claim in a couple sentences or phrases, please? Sure. I think the way I would sort of articulate the intervention that it makes is that when President Trump was elected, there was a lot of discussion of the post-truth moment, and you saw that both in newspapers and in the academic world, in journals and and books. Oh my gosh, there's no such thing as truth anymore. Truth doesn't matter. We ha- we can have al- we can have facts and we can have alternative facts, and that's traditionally. The realm of ideology, in in many ways, capitalism works because we tell particular stories about the economic sphere and your role in it. And once we sort of explain and uncover that there's sort of more pernicious aspects of the economy, then you will think differently and you will act differently. Politically, you may identify with folks who sort of share your ideologies, but who espouse Policies that do not materially benefit you. Once we explain that, you will think differently and vote differently. And in fact, that doesn't work. That's not that's not how it works. And so there's a whole host of scholarship that intervenes into that question: Why doesn't this work? Why, when we know the facts, do we not think and act differently? And that's the scholarship that I'm sort of contributing to. And I would say that the ways in which I'm contributing to it are to think through how our decision making and our identifications are material at the level of the body, at the level of biochemical and energetic exchanges among people that make it sort of difficult to change our minds or opinions or our previously held beliefs and identifications. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Like, it's even harder to let people first know about the truth, and secondly, if this truth matters to them, or even possible to change their mind according to what is really happening right there. We've read about effect and other works. Brian Ott and Greg Dickinson write about Trump's appeal to a specific effect: white male resentment. But you seem to be writing about something less specific, as if effect were not a specific emotion but a generalized emotionality. Can you elaborate on your use of the term "effect" and "effects" persuasive role in Trump's rhetoric? Sure. So, affect, like other kind of academic key terms, have a number of different definitions. Some of which are compatible, some of which are contradictory. But there is a proliferation of meanings, right? So, I think that when you're looking at, for instance, Brian Ott and Greg Dickinson's work on the Twitter presidency—if if I, if I remember that title right—they're looking at affect 
in relationship to emotion. I would think about affect differently than emotion. So the way I would understand it is that affect is kind of literally a material entity, that affect circulates biochemically and energetically as a kind of materiality on a kind of micro scale. And it cues people, it, it sort of pulls them together, it divides them, it energizes them, it depletes them, it cues them in certain kinds of ways, primarily through sensory experiences. We can talk about that in the language of emotion, but very often that language is our reckoning with what's happening sort of biologically or physiologically rather than being primary itself, right? So in that sense, I would distinguish myself from, from those definitions of affect. I don't know if it's really about more general and more specific. Certainly, Ott and Dickerson talk about resentment, and there is lots to be said for the politics of resentment or resentment in Trump and the ways in which it operates emotionally and psychoanalytically. And I wouldn't dispute those readings. I just don't think that they give us traction for changing those uh, relationships. And I think that to understand the physiological underpinnings would be to suggest that to change things, we need to have different kinds of experiences that we have to not just be exposed to different kinds of ideas, but be exposed to different people and practices and places and in a whole host of more material aspects of rhetoric. So in that sense, I would say that my, my definition of affect comes kind of from Bram Masumi, it all from Teresa Brennan. Teresa Brennan uh, talks about the kind of biochemical transmissions among people, particularly through smell. She really is keen to look at smell. I would say that Brian Masumi, who's probably has a little bit more academic purchase maybe than Teresa Brennan, is a little bit fuzzier with his notion of affect, but it's absolutely embedded and it's kind of more neurological. He has all these um, little vignettes, right? And his main, his big, his big book length study of affect. And these vignettes are scientific experiments that he then sort of riffs on and theorizes. And one of them is the sort of missing half second. So there's this experiment where uh, people are asked to look at a clock, you know, sort of clasp their fingers together. And what they find is that the time on the clock and then the time that the fingers go together are separated, but there's equal separation between what happens in the brain and your, your sort of cognizance of that on the clock. And that's the, that's the missing half second, what's going on there. I mean, classically, we might call that the, the unconscious. Uh, or the non-conscious at least. There's something that your brain is doing that you are not yet conscious of. And that's the space that I'm interested in when I think about affect. What is going on that our bodies are registering that we are not con yet conscious of. Great, thank you. So you say Trump's brand is seen a lot and associated with many exciting things such as luxury homes, clothing, etc. These associations give his brand meaning. Can you provide 
another example of the product that's been effectively charged by its associations? Sure. One of the examples I give in the article itself is Starbucks, where coffee sort of went from whatever, a dollar a cup to $4 a cup without seeing any updates in the actual products, right? It's the same coffee. How do we get the extra cost? How do we get the extra valuation? Well, it's the experience that Starbucks offered you a different kind of experience. When you're home away from home, you sort of come there, you stay, you linger, you visit, scoot down into the uh, comfortable chairs. And all of that, that experience, that environment contributes to the experience of drinking the coffee and constitutes the extra valuation. So you don't balk at paying $4 for a cup of coffee that you would previously pay, maybe a dollar, dollar fifty, something like that. Another classic example, I think, is Nike. It's the example that Naomi Klein in her book, No Logo, which is all about branding, uses. Nike has traditionally been a U.S. located company with first Japanese and then sort of Southeast Asian production. And from its inception, the CEO would tell you, I know nothing about producing shoes. I know nothing about athletic shoes. We're not a shoe business. What are we? We are a advertising, marketing, branding business, right? What do we know? We know about branding. So we are responsible for putting the swoosh, the famous Nike swoosh um, into the shoe. My nephew, when he was young and Nike was super popular, he had a swoosh shaved into his head. He shaved his head and then had a swoosh shaved into it. You know, of course they connect it with Michael Jordan, who was at the sort of height of his fame at that time. And you have the Air Jordans. And the idea is that these associations and these experiences aren't just something sort of I logically or even emotionally identify with, but through all of these kind of experiences, that my body is literally redisposed, reoriented, recued um, to behave in certain kinds of ways. So that if I sort of uh, shave that swoosh into my head and I watch my Air Jordan commercials with Michael Jordan and then I go watch him at the game and then I go to my game, my little league game, that I will literally have enhanced capacity. So since we are talking about branding, so you mentioned that Naomi Klein's work on branding as a useful way to increase the value of products. Is the Make America Great Again an example of good branding? I think it is, but it's not good branding exclusively because it has a nice phrase, right? Make America Great, which is, you know, borrowed wholesale from Reagan and Reagan's campaign and every other campaign has a little you know, bite-sized slogan that is probably as a linguistic shorthand equally good. But what makes Make America Great as Trump's brand is the whole associative apparatus built up around it so that, you know, you have that hat, but what you have is a huge rally, right? With all this excitement where we're just sort of like endorphins are pumping and people are screaming and chanting and participating, right? So that you have Trump throw up the hat and you grab it. And it's the same experience as a sports figure throwing up a hat and you grabbing it, right? So it 
So those, literally those synopses that sort of connect with your experience, say, at a basketball game and somebody throwing out paraphernalia and Trump throwing out paraphernalia are the exact same synopsis. Your brain does not distinguish between them, right? The sporting event, that's super exciting. Your favorite team is winning. And the Trump rally, the same physiologic things happening in your brain. They don't fully parse it out, right? So what makes it great branding are all of these experiences and your participation in them, right? Your desire to grab that hat, to put it on, to wear it in other locations, right? To display it proudly in your neighborhood with, along with the sign, to connect it to other things outside of Trump. That's what makes it good branding and not just the phrase itself. Yeah, I can see like the experience and demonstration of this such sign to others or like to the environment is more important than the phrase itself. Yes, yes I would say so. All right. Uh, so one follow-up question for this branding is like, do you think this phrase is intentionally used by Trump to target, especially in Americans? If we think about the same phrase being rephrased into other countries, like say, make Mexico great again, will the population be that responsive to this phrase or not? I would say not. That would be my guess. And my guess would be it, it wouldn't be as responsive or folks wouldn't be as responsive to make Mexico great again because they have a different history and a different set of experiences, not the least of which is that that's a phrase that Trump used while he simultaneously talked about, you know, building a border wall, right? And sort of denigrating Mexicans who wanted to come to the United States. So all of these things seep into the discursive, right? What we would traditionally locate rhetoric is in the kind of language as this exchange in a particular situation. And what I'm trying to get at in this essay and elsewhere is the fact that these things are never sort of bound situations, that they are sort of transhistorical and transspatial, and they're moving around and accruing in different different kinds of nations in different kinds of ways, but they're never limited to a speaker audience and discourse. All right, we got that answer. Thank you very much. If effective microshocks or small pieces of information like videos or images that can have great influence. What is the capacitation of Trump's branded materiality? How does this capacitation relate to effective microshocks? Microshock, you know, when I'm talking about microshocks, I'm getting at a few different things. One is the fact that they're, they're micro, they're small, and very often we're not really aware of them. So it could be you know, a, a small image or video or text that we acknowledge and engage with, but it could also be stuff that's going on that we're not aware of that's simultaneous with that experience. And our bodies, through their sort of sensory capacity, are taking in all of this information and organizing it and ordering it. But we might not be attuned to it, right? We're not conscious of it. We're, we're focusing on this thing, even though simultaneously this other thing is going on our bodies are picking up and assembling and responding to it. So the idea of things going on at a less than fully conscious level is one of the things I want to get at. And the other thing that I want to get at with that sort of term is kind of engaging in or with Naomi Klein and a discourse around economics. 
And so she has this book, Shock Therapy, which basically argues that you have to have these traumatic events and then you can kind of wholesale reorganize an economic, a national economic program, primarily national. And otherwise, you know, short of these disasters, which are very often like major economic crashes or environmental destructions or something, you know, majorly destabilizing. Short of that, people are not willing to make these dramatic changes. And what I'm sort of arguing is that actually, if you sort of dispose them, if you orient them, if you capacitate them very slowly and gradually through these sort of micro shocks, then they will be willing to embrace these larger changes. At some point, there's a kind of accrual that has to take place, sort of physical accrual or physical bodily, you know, sort of accumulation that a past one threshold, I don't know what, um, but at some point, right, we'll, we'll be willing to do something that we wouldn't otherwise be willing to do. And it didn't require devastating fundamental shock, right? It, it just required the accrual of small little shocks until I am a different a human subject, and I'm willing to do this now where I wasn't willing to do it previously. So customers and producers both effectively charge products. They both contribute labor and add value. How do customers and producers get into this relationship of effective circulation? Can a consumer leave all effective relationships behind, or are we always immersed in a capitalist environment filled with effectively charged products? I would say that we cannot, you know, because I understand affect as being a kind of physiological aspect of being alive. And as human beings, you cannot leave these affective relationships behind. To what extent are they capitalist? I mean, that's a sort of different question that is very complicated. And what I would say is that there are simultaneously insides and outsides of capitalism, for sure. There's relationships you could say that, hey, this is a relationship that I have with another person that isn't, you know, sort of based on a economic cost-benefit relationship, right? And primarily, those are familial relationships, right? Those are relationships with our children, our partners, etc. But because I'm also kind of coming at this from a new materialist perspective that doesn't see situations as discreetly bound, that doesn't see human beings as autonomous from other human beings, other species, other living and non-living things, then they also are simultaneously not separate, right? And so theoretically, I guess you could say, yes, it's all part of a sort of totalizing capitalist structure, but you'd have to understand capitalism fundamentally differently as production of not just products, whether that's a mega hat or a cup of coffee or a political candidate, but the production of relationships and subjectivity, which is to say that as a subject, I understand and experience and move through the world in a very particular way. So that capitalism produces subjects, it produces human beings and their relationships and not just products. So I think that's a tough question because there's, there's so many layers to it. So I guess I would say, ultimately, I would say that no, you can't get outside of capitalism. And yet I would totally acknowledge that people have relationships that they don't understand or experience as impinged upon by local economic apparatuses. 
We have just a couple more questions about branding, since that's a big topic from this article. So you describe Trump as a human marquee, someone who's created a brand around his name. Is his brand failing, or can it fail if he falls too far out of the public favor? No, he can't fail. And this has to do with the fact that his brand is based on being pegged as an outsider, being pegged as a failure, and then overcoming that. So every failure is sort of rewritten as a success. His constituents, right, the people who vote for him, know full well that he has failed <laughs> at economic ventures, right? That he has declared bankruptcy multiple times. That he had these various product lines, all of which went under. That he had a university that nobody really learned anything at, and then he had to, you know, pay a settlement for because it wasn't real education, right? They all know these things. They know he's a failure. That is his appeal, <laughs>、um, because his brand. Is all about being the underdog, being the failure, and yet overcoming it. So to say that, oh, you know, if he doesn't get reelected, he won't be a failure. He'll just sort of repurpose it in, a, in another kind of way. When I talk about Trump as a human marquee, in part, it's about sort of drawing people in, right? And you draw them in through these effective relationships, not through transparent successes in a traditional sort of way. So he's this untraditional. Way of method of attracting people to himself still works pretty fine here, or is actually not that successful. Oh, I think it's totally successful. I think it's hugely successful. I think Trump is the kind of classic example of what is pervasive, which are these sort of effective relationships, and he's a classic example because he's so successful. He doesn't have a product whatsoever. He doesn't even have a real estate product for that matter. Right, what he has is a kind of brand and an appeal that draws folks in, that makes people want to be associated with him, that you know makes people want to put his name on a product, on a building, on a movement. In this case, right? Okay. Yes. Follow up question to that: If someone tried to sell Trump stakes in a local area like Austin, would people still buy them because of the brand's recognizability? No, and that's not because they think, oh, I'm liberal and Trump is—I don't know—some sort of conservative populist or something like that. It's because they have different affective experiences, right? So affect doesn't work to some sort of universal audience. Affect works on individuals who are capacitated in certain kinds of ways. So just as Trump is an attractor of certain people with certain kinds of experiences. He also repels other people with other kinds of experiences, which is why when he was elected, you know, you saw this kind of like breakdown of liberal white folks and, and particularly women, like so aggrieved, like how could this be? So affect never works universally. So many of Trump's attempts to build up his own image rely on falsities. He got Forbes to spread his name, saying he was rich, smart, and successful, even though. He was a mediocre student at Wharton School, and he filed for bankruptcy many times. If his brand is a kind of ethos appeal, does it require truthfulness? Is Trump's brand、um, exciting and persuasive, even though it's false? So no, it doesn't require truthfulness. And yes, it's exciting and attractive, even though it's false. As I said. Not only do we know it's false, the people who subscribe to it know it's false. It's completely irrelevant to them. If you go to a Trump rally, and if you if you watch news 
anchors who go to a Trump rally. And they go and talk to the people who are major supporters. They're not just, I'm going to vote for Trump. It's that I am going to vote for Trump. I'm also going to, you know, take up time out of my life, stand in this line, queue up, spend three hours in an enclosed space during pandemic where I well know there are viruses circulating. I'm going to do all of that because I am so effectively identified with this person, even though I know hydroxychloroquine is not going to be the cure of the pandemic, even though I know the wall was never built, even though I didn't receive any bump or benefit from these tax cuts, you know? It's not like we know something they don't. They know everything we know. And yet they're sort of hyper invested in Trump at a kind of physiological level is what I'm trying to say. Also, will there be a backlash if Trump supporters ever find out he's misrepresenting himself? I think they already know. I don't think anyone's fooled. After we talk all about this stuff, how exactly Trump is using falsities or everything he's using right now being effective, this article was written not long after Trump was elected. So do you think his effectively charged rhetoric is still working? Yes. Okay, so you think this will still help him probably gain any beneficial in the next coming election, which is at the end of this year? Yes. So if affect works through experiences that have to sort of accrue, it's not like it dramatically changes from one day to the next or one year to the next. It's something that capacitates a body over decades, lifetimes, etc. So absolutely, do I think what is working for Trump now is going to continue to work for him? For sure. If he doesn't get elected, he will sort of immobilize it in a different sort of way. He doesn't care about politics he does, any more than he cares about a particular kind of steak or a bottle of water. These are not what he's interested in. What he's interested in is making money and having power and that sort of thing. So he will just shift that whole alliance, that whole effective alliance towards something else. Yeah, I guess like we can see that very clearly at this point. So that's all the question we have prepared for this interview. Is there any other point we want to mention? So I would just press the point just a little bit. The article ends by saying, look, we need a more expansive notion of rhetoric of economics. And in fact, we need a more expansive notion of rhetoric. If you were to take this argument seriously, it would mean that we'd have to think about rhetoric differently. Like we'd have to have a different definition of rhetoric. And I would just point you toward, because you guys brought up Brian Ott and Greg Dickinson, they've got a really great article on redefining rhetoric. That was in like the Berlin Journal of Critical Theory or something like this. But I guess my point is that it's not simply unique to Trump and it's not simply unique to economics, but that it would require a sort of fundamental rethinking on some levels of rhetoric to include a whole range of processes that we don't traditionally look at when we think about rhetoric. All right, that's a good conclusion or ending for our whole conversation today. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Thank you to Professor Mark Longacre for providing this opportunity and facilitating the recording process. Thank you to David and Tucker for their interview questions, and to Chaiying and Yu Yi for their contribution in editing this broadcast. And of course, thank you to Professor Catherine Chapu for the time and responses. 
The opinion that expresses in this podcast belongs to the speaker alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric Writing or to the University of Texas at Austin. Stay safe, and we wish you a pleasant day. This is Zhi Haochen from Principles of Rhetoric signing off. Thank you.